Have you ever looked at a situation and thought, wow, this is hopeless, where there seems to be no light at the end of the tunnel, no solution to what's going on? I don't know what you've made of the first 11 chapters of Genesis, but it's been a bit of a roller coaster. And at this point in the book, in chapter 11, verse 10, things appear pretty bleak. They look pretty hopeless. We seem to have hit a dip again as we journey through this book. There definitely appears here to be no light at the end of the tunnel. In just 11 chapters, mankind, the human race, has doubted and rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden, resulting in our exile and broken relationship with God. We've then seen an escalation of sin to the first murder and a continued sinful rebellion against God, so much so that we, mankind, grieve the very heart of God. God floods the whole world in a sense to start again, with one family remaining through the gracious provision of the ark. But as Josh showed us, that new start didn't last very long. Noah is shamed, people's hearts remain sinful. And Danny at the Tower of Babel shows us again how people refuse to acknowledge God, how they want to be like God. Man continues to rebel against God. They attempt to build a tower that will go into the heavens. So God again has to intervene. People are scattered all over the earth. Their languages and dialects and cultures are changed. No longer will they communicate so easily. We're under God's judgment. The restored relationship seems more distant now than ever. Where's the hope? How many chances do we need? And the world can at times, it can appear bleak, can't it? On both a global scale and on a personal level. It has ached my heart this week as I've read of four teenagers being stabbed to death in London in seven days. Four teenagers Children murdered by other children in seven days. And I've watched as politicians and figureheads and celebrities, musicians, they've all put their input into this and they've all got an opinion, but no one knows how to solve it. The world feels so evil, doesn't it? A world we live in where kids are killing kids. So hopeless, so dark. Where's the light? And we dive into chapter 11 where we are given this genealogy, this long list of so-and-so had so-and-so. I often used to read these in sermons as a kid when I got bored of what the preacher was saying. As as you read that, I wondered why that was ever more entertaining than the sermon itself. But why has this list been included? Why is there this long list of this family tree, so-and-so having so-and-so in their age and, and who their children were? Well, Despite the bleakness of these opening chapters, there's a glimmer of certain hope that runs through the book of Genesis and indeed the whole Bible. And it's the seed. Remember that back in Genesis 3. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. Uh, In the NIV, the translation is, is offspring rather than seed, but it means the same thing. A child of a woman from the family line of Adam 
will crush sin and death. And it's this seed, this offspring, which fills the Israelite readers of this account with hope. And it is our hope too. And hope in the Bible is a certainty. It's not a wish or a maybe. It's a certainty. And in Genesis chapter 5, we are given another genealogy that runs from Adam right through to Noah and his sons. And what that shows us that God has just said that the sins of the world have grieved his heart. The weakness of the world is so deep, but the seed is continuing in those times. That line is being protected, and it's protected in the ark when the flood comes. And in Genesis 11, that line continues from Shem down to Abraham. Twenty generations pass from Adam to Abraham. And that promise of God, that seed, that offspring, is continuing. So while it may appear bleak and lost, God is still at work. His plan to restore a sinful people into a loving, grace-filled relationship with him is still in motion. His promises still stands. There will be a serpent crusher from the seed. His sovereignty still exists despite the sin and evilness in the world. Christians, be assured that in our broken and lost world, God's promises still stand. When it feels like all is lost and that God is absent, he isn't. He is still at work. Hold on to these dear promises. The best, uh, one of the best pieces of advice my mum ever gave me was memorize these promises and imprint them on your heart. Because so often, the world seems so bleak. But God's promises still stand, and they're there to reassure our hearts. These verses must have caused the Israelite reader so much optimism. The seed is continuing. Here is the family. These are the forefathers of of our nation. This is where surely the story gets better. But there are some immediate issues. So look at me. We're at chapter 11, verses 27 to 32. Here's the first issue we see. Abraham, whose name literally means father, has no children, and his wife Sarai is unable to conceive. Verse, uh, verse 30 of chapter 11. Now Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. Second issue, Abraham is 75 years old. We see that in verse 4. Of chapter 12. We've just had 10 generations of the seed continuing, only to be met a few verses later with an elderly couple with no children. He is 75 years old, it's hardly his child making prime, and his wife is 10 years his junior. Third issue Terah, Abraham's father, sets out with his family from Ur in Babylon. And where's their destination in verse 31? Canaan. What the Israelites know is the promised land. Great news, isn't it? Abraham is on his way to Canaan. But what's the problem? Verse 31 again. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. They never get to Canaan. The whole family settles in Haran and Terah dies there. It was looking so promising, wasn't it? The seeds continued. They're en route to the promised land. But now we have an elderly, childless couple who've set up life for themselves outside of the destination. All of a sudden, 
It appears bleak again. But then God speaks. Let's read verses 1 to 3 of Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Uh, If you're a fan of headings, this first heading is the will. Five times in three verses, God says, I will. I will, I will, I will, I will. The assuring promise of God. The same God who speaks the very universe into existence in chapter 1 speaks again here. I will. In verse 7, he says it again. To your offspring, I will give this land. Abraham, it doesn't matter that you're old. It doesn't matter that your wife can't conceive. I will make you into a great nation. It looks impossible to you, but I will. And when God says, I will, you can be sure he does. Because the promises of God are certain. Abraham, father, will become Abraham, father of nations. I will. God will do it. Uh, There's an American children's album called Theology, uh, and there's a song on there that our nieces, Ava and Heidi, will sing in the Texan twang that it's recorded in. And it lists the various promises of God. So it talks about Abraham and the Passover and the sending of Jesus. And the chorus is put simply and effectively regarding the promises of God. Children's songs often seem to do it so well. It says this, Our God is good and true. He cannot lie to me and you. We can be sure of this. God always keeps his promises. I'll say that again. Our God is good and true. He cannot lie to me and you. We can be sure of this. God always keeps his promises. I long for my daughter to one day sing that as well. I don't know what you are like, um, but I often say things like, I will do that. And as I racked my brain for an illustration, I was humbled to think this is the case where I most often say, I will. Someone will say something, and I'll say, I'll pray for you. I'll pray about that for you. And I have every intention of doing it. I genuinely, if I've said it to you, I had every intention of praying for you. But so often, as the day goes on and the, the week goes by, I've forgotten to pray for that person, for that situation. See, with people, when we say, I will, our words can be so futile and careless. Our promises can be so flimsy and fickle. But this is not the case for God. When God says, I will, he will. The certainty of God's word is incomparable. And God's word is full of bountiful promises. The Old Testament sees promise after promise of a Messiah to come and rescue the people of God. We see promises about God's character. And in this passage, there's a promise not just for Abraham, not just for the Israelites, but for all. God tells Abraham, all people will be blessed through you. All people. Or how? In Matthew chapter 1, at the start of the New Testament, there's another genealogy. And it starts at Abraham and goes right through to the Lord Jesus Christ. The promised seed, the Messiah, 
the one who went to the cross to die for the sins of all those who believe in him. The one who people from every tribe, tongue, and nation can come to in repentance and be accepted into God's family. That's the promise God has given to Abraham. And it's given to us here in Genesis as well. There's a promise here this evening that from God all nations will be blessed. And that blessing comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Every promise God has made is fulfilled in the coming life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We can be certain that God keeps his promises because of what Christ has done. We can be even more certain of these promises of God because we have seen them in Christ. Do you know this blessing? Do you know Christ? Can you say this is a promise that you know? How does Abraham respond to this promise? The second title is The Walk. Abraham responds to God speaking by going, by walking. He makes his way to the land which God has called him. We see that in verse 1 of chapter 12. Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. Verse 4, so Abraham went. So Abraham went. You see, God speaks, and we have to respond. We are not called to be passive, but active followers of God. We are called to walk with God. We are active not as a means of uh, salvation or a condition of salvation, but as an obedient, spirit-filled response to the word of God. Galatians 5.25 says, Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Abraham continues this journey towards Canaan that his father never completed. He is 75 years old. God speaks. God promises. Abraham believes. He puts his faith and trust in God and he walks. When God speaks, do we listen? It's easy to be passive, isn't it? To, to sit back, to watch, but to actively walk, to take up our cross and follow the Lord Jesus is what we're called to do, to walk with our Lord and Saviour. <coughs> Brothers and sisters, the Christian life is active. It is not passive. When God speaks, we are to respond, and he speaks through his word. Abraham goes because he trusts the promise God has given him. Abraham obeys because he trusts God. We have a God who has promised us his son and who has kept his promise. We have a God who promises to never leave us or forsake us. We have a God who promises to save. Do we trust the promises that God has given us? Because if we trust the promises of God, then surely we respond like Abraham. We walk with God out of obedience rooted in the faith and trust we have in his promises. And maybe you're here tonight and your trust in these promises has weakened. It happens, doesn't it? 
We can feel like we've stalled on our walk. We become disillusioned with the changes in the church that we aren't keen on. We've stopped attending life groups because we're just not up for it tonight. We don't serve because we already have so much on in the week. The evening service means I won't be able to finish watching that sporting event or get the week's ironing done. I just haven't got time to pray and read the word every day because I need to get the kids sorted or I need to get those emails sent off. Let me encourage you. God speaks. He calls. He promises. Do not sit still. Do not stay where you are. Put your trust in him and respond in obedient faith. How can we expect as people of God to respond to what God says if we do not hear him? If we aren't under preaching, if we're not studying the word, if we're not reading for ourselves, how can we respond to what he is saying? If you're in a cycle tonight where you feel like your walk has stalled or your trust in these promises isn't as strong as it once was, then please talk to someone who can read the Bible with you, who can pray with you. Please get along to those groups because God speaks to his people. So put our trust in him. Abraham walks in obedience in response to a promise, but it's a promise that he must wait for. Abraham must wait. Look at me at verse 6 of chapter 12. Abraham, Abraham traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. The Canaanites are in the land. The Lord had made a promise, but the result would not be immediate. With regards to a son, it would be another 25 years before Sarah would conceive. With regards to the land of Canaan, Abraham himself would only live in it for a short time, but it wasn't until the return of Israelites from Egypt that they were given the land. Now, I'm not very good at waiting. Uh, the longest wait I can think of was not finding out the gender of our recently born baby. Nine months of waiting. Would it be a boy? Would it be a girl? And the wait was getting more and more agonizing the closer we got to the due date. And then she arrived, and I announced to the room that she was a boy. Now, <laughs> waiting isn't something I'm good at at all. And as a society, we're not very good at waiting, are we? That's why we have Amazon Prime. Remember when Amazon first came out, you can get whatever you want in three to five days, and it was revolutionary. But now we want things on the same day, or the next day, at the very least. We're such an impatient people. And here Abraham has been promised an entire land, an entire country, an entire nation descended from him, but he would have to wait. God has promised him this land, and he has to wait. I don't know if I could be patient enough if someone promised me all of that stuff. But Christian, are we not too waiting? We live between Christ's coming and Christ's return. We are promised a new heaven and a new earth. We are promised that God will dwell in the midst of us. We are promised a world of no tears, suffering and death. We are promised that the lion will lay down with the lamb. We are promised to live in eternity with our Lord and God. But we are waiting. 
Brothers and sisters, as sure as the Lord made Abraham's descendants into a mighty nation, as sure as God gave them the land of Canaan, as sure as God sent his son, the Lord will return again. And he will bring about a new heavens and a new earth. And while we are waiting, may we wait with eager expectation. I'm sure Abraham was so excited about that promise being fulfilled. It's one of our biggest flaws as Christians, isn't it? How little we long for the return of our Lord Jesus. How little we look forward to that day when he will dwell amongst us. How much more willing we would be to walk and wait with him if we were conscious of what we were actually waiting for. And as Abraham waits, he worships. Verses 7 and 8 of chapter 12. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on towards the hills of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. In verses 7 and 8, Abraham builds altars to the Lord. These are acts of open confession and declaration of his faith in God. It was a public act of worship. And he worships the Lord as he makes his way through the land that's been promised to him. So why does he do this? Well, it's a response to who God is, isn't it? God has called him, made promises to him that reveal his character. And Abraham recognizes who God is. He trusts him and his response is to worship him. It's the most natural response, isn't it? And how do we worship our Lord? Is our worship confined to the singing of hymns and choruses on a Sunday? Or is our worship an act of confession of sin and a declaration of our faith in the promise-keeping God? Because our worship, our attitude, is a response to how we view God, is it not? It's easy to pitch up on a Sunday and sing, as we walk with God, as we wait for him, do we worship him for who he truly is? Do we recognize who we are worshiping? True worship is giving our all to God, our best. Abraham's altars are built in response to the promises that he is given. To the God who has promised to bless all people. To the God who has promised him an inheritance. And they're also an acknowledgement that This is God's land, isn't it? That God is present with Abraham in the land. His willingness to worship speaks of acknowledgement of his relationship with God. God is in the land with him. And Abraham wants to worship him because of it. You see, Abraham was given just a little taster as he wandered through that land of what was to come. And he worshipped God. And we have the same God, the same promises, We have a God who we know is with us, is present among us. He's here with us this evening as we meet. Let us worship him. Let us worship him. And know that this is just a taste. Tonight is just a taste of the perfect worship that is to one day come when we are with him for all eternity. How I long for a heart like Abraham to worship God as I wait for his return. May we walk, wait, and worship 
like Abraham.